You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. It's eerie, it's uncertain, but it's still the greatest sporting event on earth. The Olympic Games officially kicks off at noon today, Irish time, with the opening ceremony in Tokyo. Let's cross live to Japan now to Des Cahill. And Des, the Irish athletes underway overnight and you'll have details on how the rowers got on shortly. But first, you've been speaking to an Irish doctor, I think, with a fascinating link to the Games. Yeah, an extraordinary link, Louise. He really is uh, central to what has gone on and he's played a huge role in how the Tokyo Olympics planned their way through the epidemic. His name is Dr Brian McCluskey from Derry, a former director of Global Health with Public Health England. Then he became director of the World Health Organization's Collaborating Centre on Mass Gatherings and Global Health Security. His role with the International Olympic Committee led to him becoming, as I say, central to dealing with the massive problems of planning for the Games during the COVID crisis. I've been involved with IOC for a while as part of their, as their public health advisor, and I worked with them for the Rio 2016 Games and some issues there. And then they asked me to do the same sort of work again for Tokyo. But since the beginning of last year, I've been working particularly on them on the coronavirus. Uh, and then last August, they asked me to chair an independent expert panel to help plan the countermeasures for the Games this year. And was there ever a danger that the Games would not go ahead? We always were aware that the overriding priority was that they had to be safe. And if they couldn't be safe, then they couldn't happen. We always thought we could make them safe. But we always said, if, if we're not sure, then we can't go ahead. Because we have to protect the health of the population of Japan, as well as the people coming to the Games. And given the Japanese public are clearly unhappy in many cases about the Games going ahead, what would you say to the Japanese public to appease them? Well, I mean, I can understand why they're nervous and I can understand the feelings given the situation in Japan. All I can say is that we believe we have done everything possible to make sure these games are safe. We've brought in a whole range of measures to stop infections coming and spreading either within the games or between the games and the local population. We're picking up now in the first few days. So we've done everything we think that we can do and we think it will be safe. But but we understand the feelings. It's difficult to do this in the middle of a pandemic. It's never been done before. Now, you say there have been a few positive tests within the village, etc. Were you expecting that? Uh, yes. I mean, essentially, if I didn't think any of the tests would be positive, then I wouldn't wouldn't be worth doing the tests in the first place. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we're doing tens of thousand tests uh, across, the, across the games and the athletes. So we always expected that some of those would be positive. I mean, we, one thing we know about this coronavirus is it does travel well. You know, so we knew new people would travel and then they might get infected either before they left their home country or just after they got here. And that's the ones that we want to pick up. So we've got testing before people leave their home country, testing at the airport and testing in the village. And each, if you like, of those layers picks up the people who are starting to become infectious so we can manage them and look after them quickly and make sure they don't spread it to other people. But we knew it would happen. The challenge is not to have no cases. The challenge is to make sure the cases don't spread into clusters and spreading events. The numbers we're seeing around actually probably lower than we thought we might see. Uh, it's 0.02% positive rate for the testing we're doing, which is actually very low. That's in some ways not surprising because the group we're testing are probably a group who've been very careful for the last few weeks because the athletes and the teams do not want to get infected. Um, but it is lower than we plan for uh, in the sense that we assume it could be higher than this. So at the moment, this, the system is doing what it's designed to do, which is pick up those people who are coming into Japan early with potential infection, identifying those and taking them out of the system quickly so that they can be looked after and they don't spread to other people. 
And what about the decision not to allow spectators attend events? Was that part of your brief? Uh, no, that's a decision for the Japanese government to make. Uh, and the IOC is happy with the decision they made. The Japanese government has to make a decision not just about the games, but in the light of what the population of Japan think is right to happen. And we've seen around the world that different governments make different decisions. Uh, that's the nature of governance. Has it been one of the most interesting projects you've ever worked on? Uh, yes, it's, it's been fairly exciting, shall we say. <laughs> Horrendous how it can affect <laughs> yeah, the world and sport in, in this at this level, though. Yeah, indeed. I mean, and that's one of the things that's been keeping us going is, you know, you know, from our perspective, looking at the position of the athletes who've been doing this training for seven, eight years to get here and perform on the world stage. You know, they put huge effort into it. They've then had to put all the effort into the extra year, you know, mostly in lockdown in various countries to try and keep up their training motivation. And you think if they put that amount of effort into getting here, then it's up to us who organise it to make sure that it will happen if it's at all possible. And we can't take that away from them if there's any way of doing it safely. And that's part of what kept us going. That's Dr. Brian McCluskey playing a key role here. So COVID, not the only problem for the Olympics. Word coming in in the last minute that the rowing schedule may change. Big wins coming in, a technical meeting at the moment, and they're looking at changing the schedule, could be removing all of Sunday's action. So we'll keep you updated on that. But Ireland did have our first rowers in action today, including our medal hopes, Anita Pushpore, who eased to victory in heat two of the women's single skulls. She was just delighted to get the race under her belt. Yeah, we're finally here. It's been a long year, but at the same time, it went quite fast. So just delighted to see teams doing so well. And uh, this extra year was kind of good in that way. Yeah, we have a massive team here. So it's very exciting comparing to London So and even Rio. Uh, yeah, can't wait to see what they do. Yeah, how important has that support been for you? That having the team around you. Oh, it's great. It's like just it feels like exactly what home. You just go out, try to beat each other on the water, and that competitive environment is very helpful. And how are they all back at home in your house with the kids up early watching this morning? Do you think? I think my husband was yeah. So I want to say hi to my kids and my husband. Hope they're doing well. So day one done and happy with the start. Yeah, happy with the start. Day one take the box uh, moving on to the next round that's the need and we'll keep you in touch with that remember that we did also have another crew in action today Philip Doyle and Ronan Byrne in the men's double skulls they were disappointed they were four to four boats in their heat they'll be in the repechage tomorrow morning and a blow for one of Ireland's leading swimmers Shane Ryan has had to withdraw from the 100 backstroke former Irish Olympian Nick O'Hare is covering the swimming for RTE he's been explaining Shane's problem to me yeah, so Shane was due to go on the 100 metre backstroke, which he semi-finaled in Rio, but he's had a recurring shoulder issue over the last three weeks. He's had a lot of medical attention and the decision was made, duty of care for the swimmer, but also as well with cognizance on the relay that's coming up, which is the 4x200 freestyle relay and his other event, the 100 butterfly. So the decision was made not to risk his shoulder and um, he's going to go ahead with those other two events. And how can he compete in the other events and not in the backstroke? Yeah, so it only hurts him really in the backstroke. So it's a different way of recovering. So you've got a lot more force on your on your shoulder when you're taking your, your arm out of the water on the backstroke because you're lifting your whole arm out, whereas on freestyle or butterflies, your shoulder shoulder girdle that moves forward and then you're, you have a bent arm coming forward so it's just less pressure How big of a blow is that for him given it's a premium event? 
Yeah, personally, I'd say it's a huge blow for him. You know, he, he was top 16 in the world at the last Olympic Games and he would have liked to certainly have repeated that performance and hopefully sneaked into a semi-final. But I think it's a mature decision. Like, this is not the end of his swimming, albeit it's the second Olympic Games and he's 28 years of age. He's got the International Swimming League to think of. He's also got World Championships coming up next year and the year after, indeed. And then, of course, you know, being the team guy that he is, we've got three other guys who are relying on him for the relay. So a very, very mature decision all, all round. All right, thanks for that, Nick. And so, Louise, we're awaiting the opening ceremony in three and a half hours. More than 11,000 athletes from 270, 207 countries are competing for these medals. When the Games were postponed in March 2020, organisers said the Olympic flame could become the light at the end of the tunnel. The pandemic's still raging, but hopefully... The lighting of the torch today will offer a glimmer of that light. Thanks so much, Des. I'll be escaping the light of the sun and watching it on my couch from half 11 on RTE2, live coverage of the opening ceremony from Tokyo's Olympic Stadium. Restrictions on international travel are being eased this morning as Ireland joins the rest of the EU in adopting the digital COVID certificate. Under this system, fully vaccinated people, those with a negative test result and people who have recovered from COVID within the past six months can travel across the EU. Also from today, fully vaccinated people arriving from Britain or the United States won't have to self-isolate on arrival here or take a PCR test before departure. Our reporter Una Kelly is at Dublin Airport this morning. Una, what's it like there? Well, Rachel, there has been a bit of a buzz so far this morning. We're inside Terminal 2 here. Now, of course, in normal times, nothing thrums quite like an airport. Over the past 16 months, of course, it has been quite quiet. In 2020, Dublin Airport had only 7.5 million people through its doors, and that's only a quarter of the number of passengers they would have had the previous year. But, of course, the listening of restrictions on international travel from today means people can now make trips to visit family, to take holidays, bringing a few more passengers passengers through these doors and there have been flights arriving so far. Uh, there were flights going to Malaga from Terminal 2 this morning, flights arriving in from Chicago and I've been speaking to some of the passengers at the airport this morning. We came in from Boston. United States. Yeah. United States exactly and uh, came in from Boston and uh, it's actually our fourth attempt trying to get back. My wife is American, my son is American, we live in uh, Rhode Island. Newport, Rhode Island, but we're um, going back to see my mom in Cork City. But with the whole thing with COVID and everything, you know, everything stopped for, we were trying to get it, as I say, it's our fourth attempt to get back, you know. And how did you find it? How does it feel to be back finally? It feels fantastic. Long time coming, you know. I think uh, maybe sometimes you have to have something taken away a little to really appreciate it. Where have you travelled from today? From the USA. Yep. And how did you find the experience of travelling now? It was good. It was good. Yeah, felt safe. Were you clear on what the rules were for arriving in Ireland? Yeah, it was a bit of a mix-up here and there, but we had to fill out more stuff, but it was fine. Everything was pretty smooth for the first time out. We came from Chicago, and the flight was good. Yeah. And do you mind me asking what you're here for? How much Um, have you been looking forward to it? (laughs) We were originally going to come visit our daughter who was studying in Maynooth, but that was two marches ago, and uh, with COVID she was asked to leave, so we're now doing the delayed trip with some of our family. Where are you, where are you traveling to today? Malaga. To where? Malaga, sorry. 
and how does it feel to be travelling again? Well, I must say it's well. The main thing is that I've been I got my double vaccination, believe it or not, over ten weeks ago, but I still haven't got my passport. I took off and do a test on Saturday, PCR test. You didn't get your digital no, COVID no, certificate. No. Didn't get it at all. Well, we're traveling to Lisbon today. To Lisbon. Yes, yes, to Portugal. Yeah. And were you clear on the rules about what you would need to do before departure and on arrival? Uh, yeah, it seemed pretty clear to us. Uh, I mean, we'll see when we get there if we followed those correctly, but it really, you know, the rules seemed clear enough just to get tested. Yeah. And did you have any difficulties at all in the runoff? Did you have any doubts about traveling? Uh, yeah, I mean, there was some time where we were considering uh, whether or not, you know, with, with the new variant coming up and uh, restrictions may or may not change um but uh yeah we're still going forward with it uh, malaga uh-huh. and uh were you clear on the rules for departure and arrival yeah pretty clear yeah yeah no everything seemed to be fine yeah how did you find the whole experience did you get your digital covid cert D- digital covid cert hasn't arrived as yet no but i have the car that i got from the gp so um, a bit surprised the digital cert didn't arrive out q park or quick park I checked online last night their rates and all that kind of stuff and um, it said their operation is normal except with some restrictions and it's closed so we spent 20 minutes trying to get a car- parking space so that's probably been the yeah. biggest inconvenience. Did you have any doubts at all before travelling or are you feeling okay about it? No, I'm feeling fine now. That was some people travelling through Dublin Airport this morning there and I'm joined now by Dalton Phillips, the CEO of Dublin Airport Authority. Dalton, more passengers expected here today than there has been for quite some time. What were preparations like for that? Well look, it's a huge day. There'll be 22,500 passengers going through the airport today. We've been down to days when we've had a couple of hundred passengers going through. So team really building for today, the first day of really opening up our country. It couldn't have come sooner. How many staff will you have? What were the getting the operation readiness team? What was that like? Well, there's a huge amount of work to be done because so many of the processes are different. And actually for your listeners, as you come here, it is a different experience as you travel. You need more time. There's different ways of doing things and obviously having to train and ensure that we have all those processes in place has been key. But we think we're ready. The signage is there. Um, the locations are there. We're flying to over 160 locations with 36 different airlines. So, look, there's no excuse now to be able to book your travel. You can get out there, and we're ready for you both here in Dublin and in Cork. Over the course of the pandemic, what was the most challenging thing for Dublin Airport? Well, it was clearly just the loss of traffic and the silence and the eeriness. And uh, clearly, and what comes from that is the destruction. I mean, we've had to say goodbye to a third of our staff. But the whole ecosystem has been heavily impacted. And that's why it's going to take time to build back. It's probably going to take three to four years to build back to where we were. And remember, we're just a rocky outpost on the western fringes of Europe. So getting it going again is going to take a lot of effort. We're going to need all the ministers, all the state agencies working together to reconnect Ireland to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. A a third of the workforce, as you said, lost their jobs over the course of the pandemic and quite a tough job market out there. Would you anticipate that people will begin to be rehired at some point? Well, look, we look forward to seeing passenger growth coming back. But as I said, we'll be 22,500 passengers today, but it's still 85% down on pre-COVID levels. The demand's there. It's safe to travel. And in time, we will need to build back up. 
Dalton Phillips, thank you. We're also joined here by Peter O'Neill, the Chief Operating Officer at Aer Lingus. What should people expect now when they're flying with Aer Lingus? Well, you know, it's going to be some time since people have travelled uh, given the COVID pandemic. So it will be a different experience, as Dalton has referred to. From the time people board, uh, they'll see masks in use throughout the airport. And then on board, people will not be asked to use the masks as well throughout. Some changes to how the service is delivered on board as well. But by and large, all our staff are really looking forward to welcoming people back on board and taking them to the destination. And it's certainly a big buzz around the airport today as we kind of experience people reconnecting, uh, families and friends meeting again. So uh, an optimistic day. Aviation, of course, was very hard hit during the pandemic. Is this too little too, too late for your airline? Well, look, there's no doubt the scale of what we have to face into is enormous. Uh, today we'll operate 66 flights. That compares to 346 flights on the same day in 2019. So a huge challenge to get back on track and rebuild our network and restore connectivity. With more than 3,700 COVID cases over the weekend in Ireland, is now really the time for non-essential travel? Well, look, you know, the way we look at it and what we have to bear in mind right now is that all the people who are travelling will be either fully vaccinated, have recovered from COVID, or hold a negative PCR test result. So those are really important reassurance measures on top of all the physical changes that have been made to ensure people can travel safely. Peter O'Neill, thank you very much. So just to recap what's changed now from today, travel to and from Ireland across EU countries is now possible with no quarantine if you have proof of being vaccinated, recovered from COVID-19, or you have a negative PCR test in the last 72 hours. And another change from today is that fully vaccinated passengers arriving from the UK and US now won't have to self-isolate on arrival here in Ireland. Rachel. Una, thank you very much. That was Una Kelly there at Dublin Airport for us this morning. And let's talk more about the reopening of hospitality inside from hopefully next Monday, the 26th of July. The Cabinet is going to be discussing it further when it meets this morning. The guidelines around it include no time limit on the length of time that customers can stay inside, while staff will be able to use an app to check COVID certificates. And the guidelines will be published when the President signs the legislation into law. We're joined this morning by three business owners, Wendy Akers from 5050 Restaurants in Counties Meath and Dublin, Alan Grehan, manager of the Sprezzatura restaurant in Dublin, and Tom Mulligan, owner of the Cobblestones Bar in Smithfield, and also joining us, Michael O'Donovan, chair of the Cork City and County branch of the Vintners Federation of Ireland. You're all very welcome, indeed. Thanks for being with us. Um, Wendy, listening there to Dr. D, I mean, are you comfortable um, about offering indoor dining and allowing unvaccinated children inside? Yes, we are. We're certainly comfortable about letting everybody in. We'll just follow the guidelines as we have done up to date. Uh, anything that was introduced to us before we were closed in December, uh, they'll all remain. And anything new that comes in, we'll just follow those guidelines. Alan, how do you feel about it? I think that we are at a very different point in this pandemic than we have been since day one. Um, you know, I think we're at a better position than we ever have in terms of having a lot of vulnerable people protected. Um, I think we're at a greater understanding about how the disease is transmitted airborne. And I think we've implemented better procedures now in terms of mitigating the risk of actually getting this disease. So we're comfortable and I think we're ready to go. 
Tom, listening there to Dr. D saying that, you know, she would prefer a greater number of people to be vaccinated before indoor dining and drinking went ahead. Um, do, do you, are you comfortable w- with opening up potentially next week? Well, we have a, a we've been closed now for obviously uh, over uh, a year and getting on to a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And I think at the end of the day, we have to deal with the coronavirus rather than um, kind of ignoring it to an extent that that we have to find out what happens if somebody walks into a pub, uh, takes a few drinks and see how they get on with uh, mingling in public with other people. I don't think there's going to be any um, any uh, positive result until that actually happens. It's risky though, is it not? It's, it, there is a certain amount of risk involved, but I think there is a, with the program of vaccination going on at a fairly rapid stage. Now, I'm vaccinated, some of my staff are not, and some of my children are, um, are in line to register and all that sort of thing for vaccination. But I think we have to deal with the whole situation rather than, uh, say, pussyfooting around it and uh, hoping that things will get better. If we find out what happens, we will know whether we've made a mistake or whether we're on the right road. Right. Michael O'Donovan, you're uh, representing the Vintners Federation of Ireland in Cork. Uh, Will your members ask their customers about vaccination and check their certs at the doors? Yes, look, it's part of the guidelines that will be issued later uh, today, hopefully. Um, but yes, uh, look, there's two options in the guidelines, we're told. One will be the, the app, and the second part will be, uh, if you don't use the app, it will be a visual check, and you'll have to put a tick in a box and uh, a paper cert, and they will, it's part of the protocol, so we will have to check um, that people are vaccinated before they come in, and the protocols have been put in place by the Department of Health, so they're the experts on it, so if they're uh, willing to let us open with the protocols, I think we'll be operating in a safe environment uh, to get reopened. So you'll have to have a member of staff, all your members and, and pub owners across the country, a member of staff at the door? Yes, uh, look, this will be, uh, if a group comes to your door, you have to take the, the name and contact details of the lead person of that group, but you will have to check that each member of that group have the vaccine pass. So it will be, I suppose, um, a time uh, frame uh, there for people to be at the door so you will need a member of staff at the door uh, no matter what size your premises is really you'll, you'll have to have somebody there um, doing the duty of checking that. And Wendy will you and your staff be adamant that this is done for every person who wants to come in? Oh absolutely uh, most certainly the only issue is that my staff feel at the moment and the worry is confrontation like in a restaurant, we don't have security staff on the door, as the publicans would. So, yeah, that's just a little bit fear. That's a, an issue for us at the moment that we'll have to overcome. Alan, what about you? I think from day one, hospitality businesses have been very good at following procedures and guidelines anyway. This is something that we do every day when we're in work in terms of following health and safety guidelines, food safety guidelines. It's, it's not an issue with us. This is just something new that we have to add on. And it's something that we're doing for the health and safety of the customers. So to be honest, I think to the vast majority of hospitality businesses, this is going to become second nature. 
Tom, in relation to ventilation, because we've learned, I suppose, an awful lot more since the first wave. It's We now know it's an airborne virus and perhaps some of the things that we would have done uh, last year early on perhaps are less important now in terms of sanitising surfaces, um, social distancing and so on. So in terms of ventilation, have you invested in that for your premises? Well, we, we're kind of very lucky at the moment because of the weather situation in that we have four doors into our place and they are permanently all open. Um, we have a, a, a very strong uh, extractor fan and so our circulation of uh, the air quality is going on permanently. So we will, uh, when we get the, the full guidelines in it, we will recheck and see uh, is is our ventilation system up to standard but um we're kind of happy enough at the moment that our ventilation and the, the the turnover of air is pretty pretty good michael is, is this an important a critically important uh, issue for your members and are they are they do they have sufficient ventilation measures in place ready to go yeah, look, most publicans would have ventilation uh, in their premises. So as Tom just said there, we have to wait to see the final draft of the guidelines. But uh, I know a lot of publicans, having spoken to them over the last 48 hours, have been ordering CO2 monitors as an extra precaution in their premises. And I even know some have got air purification systems into their premises. But look, until we see the final draft, I think as Tom said, at the moment we're, we're very lucky. Um, you know, we can open doors, open windows air will be, cha- will be changed anyway with true flow in the premises when people are moving about um, entering or leaving the premises but I think the extra precautions, uh, if that's what's needed publicans will do that to get open and Wendy, from a business perspective, do you need indoor dining? Because as we know the weather is amazing at the moment, most of us will want to eat and drink outside but from a, a business perspective, do you absolutely need it to reopen? We absolutely need it in Navan and Templeau because we do not have any outdoor dining there. So we have been operating on takeaway basis only, which obviously since outdoor opened up, we that's just business has deteriorated significantly. So in Ashbourne, yes, we have uh, outdoor dining, but not an awful lot. We only have about 30 seats covered. Is it the same for you, Alan? We're in an equally similar position. We have the premises which is just off Camden Street and then we also have our premises out in Rathmines now we've been very lucky that the the, the Camden Street premises has a, a nice big outdoor area but the Rathmines area or the Rathmines premises again doesn't have an outdoor area so in order for that business to reopen we need the return of indoor hospitality. Okay well thank you all very much for joining us this morning Wendy, Alan, Tom and Michael. Two pop-up soup kitchens for the homeless in Dublin city centre fear they may have to shut. The volunteer-run services have been told they're in breach of food safety standards and that all kitchens making food for the stall should be registered with the HSE. Service providers say they don't have the means to meet the recommendations and fear they may have to close. Ashton Maloney reports. Red, red, red or green? Red. Red and two bananas. 
thank you very much. Kingsley Igbinosa queues up at a pop-up soup kitchen on Grafton Street in Dublin. It's a couple of trestle tables lined with volunteers busily laying out donated home-cooked food for those in need to take for free. The Homeless Street Cafe is one of many of its kind in the city. They operate one night a week and have done for the past five years. They estimate they serve around 300 people in need in an evening. For 30 months almost, I've lived in this situation where I feed from this kitchen. So that is how important they are. So I'm Denise Carroll. I'm one of the founders of the Homeless Street Cafe. The food is made with love and care and that's where it comes from. It's delivered in that way and the people who receive it know that thought has gone into it. Recently, the Homeless Street Cafe received a visit from environmental health officers from the HSE. They inspected the pop-up service and issued Denise Carroll with a letter detailing evidence of infringement of food safety regulations. We have utmost respect for any sort of recommendations, but when it's taken to a level where it's impossible for us to meet, that every kitchen that makes a sandwich, that makes a pot of dinner for us has to be a HSD registered site. They have to be HACCP trained, they have to be inspected. Straight away that's going to deter people. They have to open their family home to the HSD just to make a sandwich. I just think our priorities are all wrong. The service will be subject to another inspection next week. The letter says failure to comply may result in formal enforcement action being initiated by the HSE. I don't know, does that mean we have to cease? Does that mean we'll be fined? I don't know what it means really for us. But I do know, like, I have to turn up. There's people queuing here for some food, some company, a bit of care. A statement from the HSE to RTE News says that all food businesses must comply with the requirements of food law and that this type of service is included under the definition of a food business. The statement also said that those accessing homeless services are among the most vulnerable in our community and possibly immunocompromised and therefore may be at risk of serious illness as a result of foodborne infection. I'm Dr Bernard Hegarty, the Director of Enforcement Policy with the Food Safety Authority of Ireland. Compliance is necessary under the law and um, we can't create a situation where where we segregate uh, out the poor people and um, deem it acceptable to give them a lower level of food safety. Similar kind of situation, for example, wouldn't be accepted in, for example, prison uh, prison kitchens, again, operating on a not-for-profit basis, um, but it wouldn't be socially acceptable uh, to say that because they're in prison that they can be subjected to a lower level of food safety. Uh, we have to come up with better answers than that. Another queue of those in need of food gathers at College Green, at Friends Helping Friends, another pop-up soup kitchen in the same situation. They are due to be re-inspected next week, but founder Glenda Harrington says they will not meet the standards. I would make a lot of the hot food at home myself, but we have a group of ladies that make sandwiches. We have a lady that makes lasagnas, so they would want all their homes HACCP approved. They'd want their homes inspected every three months. We don't have any money. We are completely non-funded. Everything on this table is donated to us. But there's people in that queue that come here for food, yeah, but they come for emotional support, they come for the respect they receive, compassion, things like that, you know, and that they're not getting anywhere else during the day. So we feel very, very, very strongly about not being shut down. And that was Glenda Harrington from the Friends Helping Friends Soup Kitchen in Dublin with our reporter Ashton Maloney. 
Well, I'm looking at the weather app on my phone and it's already 21 degrees in Dublin. The heat wave continues today, although temperatures are set to return to more normal summer levels next week. And where else would you be on a sunny day than by the sea? Our southeast correspondent, Connor Kane, has been talking to those doing just that yesterday in Tremor, County Waterford. Oh, so look, it's absolutely fantastic. It's um, very, very enjoyable, you know. It's, uh, one day after the next is, is brilliant. But so lucky to live beside the seaside, literally. <laughs> and it, we're 10 minutes out the road, you know, so we're very, very fortunate compared to others, you know. Out in the Gillamines every day, swimming, diving, kids, everyone's happy, everyone's in good form, and everyone's social distancing with the extension of the car park and the extension of the beach, so everyone is able to stick to their own little bubble, you know, so it's fantastic. Yesterday evening we swam in Newtown Cove and had fish and chips on the way home, so we're loving this. Childhood memories. <laughs> Sounds great. Any plans for the next couple of days? Uh, another swim tonight in Newtown Cove and... Um, feather tomorrow. Feather tomorrow, yeah, so looking forward to it. The weather is beautiful and we're enjoying sitting here watching everybody go up and down eating ice cream. Any plans for the next few days? Do you hope it lasts? hope it lasts until the end of September. Uh, ice cream. <laughs> um, ice cream and the sun. Cause we you don't, like doing we, anything else? We barely get the sun. So, good that we have the sun. Ah, it's been fantastic. We've been uh, sitting around every beach in Waterford the last couple of days. Getting a, a nod swim and uh, getting out, enjoying it. It's great. Stay beside the sea, cool off once in a while. Making the most of tomorrow. Yeah, Tremor is absolutely fantastic. It's, uh, it's great to see the, the local businesses doing, um, making a few bob. How are we enjoying the weather? Absolutely fantastic. And we're hoping it lasts at least another week. <laughs> but uh, other than that, we're just making the best of it. And um, as I said, long may it last. Any plans for the next few days? Not much, same. Bit of swimming, barbecues, and just taking it easy. And yourself, what do you like about the good weather? Tell me you like swimming. And I swimming. And jumping. And jumping. Connor Kane there sounding like he's had a terrible afternoon's work talking to people out in Tremor in County Waterford. Bonnie Diamond, communications meteorologist at Metair, and good morning to you. Good morning, Louise. Yes, I'm quite envious of uh, all the guests uh, enjoying the, the sunny weather this week. We've been hard at work at Erin this week, just uh, trying to communicate the, the forecast around the heat wave. Well, I'm really, really curious to hear what, what, what you're going to be able to tell us about this, because long may it last, the man said in Tremor, but it won't last too much longer, will it? That's right. Well, it looks today will be another very warm day. Temperatures once again approaching into the high 20s and 30s. And as we head into the weekend, it's not going to be quite as hot. So we're going to lose those high 20s and 30s temperatures. But we're still going to see temperatures are into the low to mid 20s, which is, is still pretty, pretty warm for an Irish summer and some good sunny spells over the weekend, too. And I suppose quite a few of us would have woken up over the last few mornings feeling worse for wear because sleeping at night's been been really difficult over the last day or two. The temperatures tipped into a tropical night. What is what's a tropical night? That's an actual weather phenomenon. How rare are they here? It is. So a tropical night is where temperatures overnight do not fall below 20 degrees Celsius and they are very rare for Ireland. 
During the week, we recorded a tropical night in, in County Kerry at Valencia, where temperatures didn't fall below 20.5 degrees overnight. And that is something else. You know, that's usually a, a good temperature, but, you know, a, a, a summer's day time temperature in Ireland for July, never mind a temperature overnight. And going back in our, our, our records uh, from the 1940s, this has actually only happened on a handful of occasions. So they really are, are quite rare in Ireland. Uh, will, will you talk me through some of the some of the other temperatures that, that your weather stations have been logging over the last couple of days? Yeah, so we've seen the the highest temperature that we've seen um, during this heat wave uh, is around thirty one degrees, and that was recorded at Mount Dillon in Roscommon during the week. Um, but if we go up to the north, we've actually seen some record-breaking temperatures in Northern Ireland. And in fact, uh, temperatures, the the maximum temperature record was broken three times this week for Northern Ireland. And we're now at around 31.4 degrees uh, recorded in Armagh yesterday. So that really is quite exceptional that Northern Ireland has has seen day on day uh, temperature records broken uh, this week. So it really is quite extreme temperatures that we're seeing. I think that the all-time highest temperature in terms of met Aaron is 33.3 degrees and that was in 1887. Are we going to break that soon, do you think? So uh, during this heat wave, it didn't look quite like temperatures were, were going to get just as high as that. But what we are seeing is that these extreme weather events and heat waves are becoming more likely as our climate changes. And so it's only a matter of time, really, that we that we see that thir- that longstanding 33.3 degrees record being challenged in, in Ireland. And actually, I did enjoy seeing one of the weather stations in the north in Ballywatacock, which uh, I think it was 31.2 degrees. And they have they have speed speed signs up on the roads up there that say 30 miles per hour. And yes, someone had, I, I someone had put 31.2 and taken a picture of themselves standing beside the repurposed speed sign. But um, I suppose that the thing is, Bonnie, though, is, is as brilliant as the fine weather is and as fantastic as it is for the staycation industry, you know, there is that nagging feeling that, it shouldn't be like this. I mean, it, you mentioned it there. Is this all climate change? So we've had a lot of people getting in touch with us at my Erin this week to ask the question. So great that you're asking it, Louise. There are meteorological reasons behind this heat wave. And we look at the jet stream, which, which usually sits either across Ireland or to the south of Ireland. And that's what drives our weather from the Atlantic. Now, the jet stream is is not in its usual place. It's been displaced to the far north of Ireland and that's allowed high pressure to build and a warm air mass has, has drifted in and that's what's brought us this heat wave. However, there are a number of reasons why this particular heat wave is unusual for Ireland and, and quite exceptional. Firstly, it's the duration. You know, it's not... Uh, unusual for us in Ireland to see a, a couple of warm days in summer. However, this heat wave has been going on for around seven days now, uh, and and that really is is quite exceptional for Ireland, where we've seen temperatures day on day into the high twenties and low thirties. Uh, and and also, it's not just the the temperatures by day; it's the temperatures overnight. We're just not used to these very warm and humid temperatures overnight. We talked about the tropical nights in in. in recorded this week, you know, we've only had that on a handful of occasions since our our digital records began in the 1940s. So, you know, it it is unusual, it is exceptional. And if we look elsewhere in the world, we can see these 
extreme unusual patterns for example the the heat wave in Canada that I'm sure your listeners are aware of um last month you know climate scientists have have said that that was virtually impossible without cli- without climate change and our climate scientists at Erin over the next few weeks will per- be performing an attribution study as well to take a look at the climate signal behind uh, this heat wave Okay, uh, Bonnie Diamond, communications meteorologist at Mount Aaron, thanks so much for talking to us. And if this is the last of the very, very hot days, let's enjoy it. A humanitarian catastrophe. That is how the UN's top humanitarian official in Afghanistan has described the deteriorating situation in the country as the Taliban continue to capture territory and international forces withdraw. The BBC's Yogata LeMay travelled to Kunduz city, capital of Kunduz province, where the UN says 35,000 displaced people have arrived in just four weeks. She joins us now from her base in Mumbai. Yogata, how much of Afghanistan does the Taliban control now? It's estimated that the Taliban controls about half of Afghanistan's territory, but this is really a fluid proportion because every day uh, the Taliban release statements making claims that they've captured new districts. Then we have word from the Afghan government side where they claim to have recaptured some of these districts. So, you know, there are front lines all over the country and they're fluid front lines. They're changing every day. Uh, and the reality on the ground also is is more nuanced. Some districts that the Taliban claim to have captured are really large swathes of land with very few people living on them. Uh, some districts are areas that are controlled by neither side. Uh, and then, you know, there are areas that the Afghan government says they've tactically retreated from to focus on more important areas. Uh, and then there is also strategically and symbolically important districts, areas near the border with Tajikistan, for example, areas near the border with Pakistan, for example, that the Taliban have taken control of. So they have made rapid gains over the past few months. Uh, Afghanistan has 34 provinces. The capitals of these provinces, the cities, they're all still controlled by the Afghan government. But as we saw in Kunduz city, which is the capital of the Kunduz province, Uh, parts of that city are now no longer under the government's control. And tell us about some of the people you met there because they have endured great loss and great suffering. Uh, That's right. I mean, firstly, just the images of what we saw there, because these camps for displaced were actually just open fields, mostly in front of government school buildings. Uh, And shelter was really just, you know, bamboo sticks dug into the ground, pieces of cloth strung between them. Uh, It's, you know, the heat is blazing. It's 45 degrees Celsius in the daytime, and it doesn't get that much cooler in the nighttime either. Uh, And, uh, you know, as we went in there, really, first people came to us because they were thought that we were going to register them, because unless they're registered as displaced people, uh, you know, they can't access food or rations or any of the relief uh, that is being distributed. When they realized we're journalists, they you know, all of them had stories. It was almost impossible to count uh, how many people had lost, uh, you know, near ones, the kind of trauma they'd witnessed. Uh, you know, the three women that, you know, we featured in our reports, all of them, uh, you know, one woman, um, 77 years old, and in, in a span of two weeks, she lost all of her three sons in the fighting. Uh, And one thing that really struck me, especially about these women who've been left alone without uh, an adult male member of the family, is that socially, culturally in in, in Afghanistan, there are serious ramifications of that on their ability to access food, 
uh, water, medical supplies, really anything. They're left in a very vulnerable situation. Yes, and I heard one man who you met saying that he would rather die at home than have to, to live in the camps to which he had fled. And let's hear from a woman called Nasima, who you met as well, Yogata. Her and her two children were living in a camp in Kunduz. Her husband, two daughters and her son were all killed when a mortar shell hit their home. Let's hear her. I am numb with grief. Every day I cry thinking of them. I don't have anyone to support me. I'm alone. I don't have any food or water. How are the hospitals coping? Well, so we visited the main hospital in Kunduz. This is a provincial hospital and would earlier cater to, you know, the whole province. Um, now, you know, pretty much all of the areas surrounding Kunduz city are controlled by the Taliban. So what the doctors in this provincial hospital told me was that they do, you know, they have 75 other uh, medical centers across the province, uh, which are now not under Afghan government control. Um, the doctor there told us that when the fighting gets really intense, they get so many patients that the hospital isn't able to cope. Uh, and these are just the people who are able to make it to hospitals. He said there are a lot of people he knows uh, who are either seriously injured, um, you know, or, 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 you know, or have injuries that get more serious because they aren't able to access medical treatment. Uh, you know, and as far as the, the hospital itself, I mean, you know, it's not been targeted as such. He did say there were mortar shells that landed in the hospital a few days before we, we went there, but there has been sort of active fighting where the hospital is. But he said, you know, when we leave from home and we come to the hospital, we don't know if we're going to make it alive. When we're here, we don't know if we're going to survive to see the next day. Uh, you know, his words were that every moment that we're here, we're anticipating death and it's civilians who are getting caught. It is the civilians suffering in this battle between the Afghan government and the Taliban as foreign forces leave the country. Well, I mentioned the UN humanitarian coordinator for Afghanistan. Let's hear a little clip from him now because he's Dr. Ramiz Alakbarov and he says the situation there, well, it needs to end this crisis or the situation will deteriorate further. The humanitarian catastrophe we're watching unfolding in front of our eyes is really big. Ongoing human suffering associated with displacement caused by war and by the drought. Afghanistan needs everything. It needs more than it ever needed it before, and it needs it now. I have been around the world. This is one of the worst crises we have seen. It has a potential to get even worse than it is right now. We should stop it before it gets even worse. And Yogata, the, the people who you spoke to and met, do they feel abandoned by the NATO forces withdrawing and the US troops? I think that's, you know, the overwhelming sense we got when we were amidst these people were they felt forgotten, they felt abandoned uh, by their own government and also by foreign troops uh, who were leaving the country. Uh, you know, one man uh, said that they're leaving irresponsibly, they're leaving all of a sudden without there being, uh, you know, any peace agreement between the Afghan government and the Taliban. Uh, the situation here, you can see it, how bad it is. Uh, you know, we're, we're already poor and now it's become much worse. Uh, you know, every day there is a surge in violence, um, and 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 he, you know, his words were that no one is hearing our voices, and that's certainly, you know, I think the overwhelming sense we got there is these people felt forgotten. 
Yogata, thank you very much indeed for joining us this morning. The BBC's Yogata LeMay, who recently travelled to Kunduz City, capital of Kunduz province in Afghanistan, joining us from her base in Mumbai. Tonight's prime time will highlight a massive surge in the use of crack cocaine in Dublin. A team from Prime Time and the RTE Investigations Unit filmed open street dealing and spoke to people who use crack. Now, in a moment, we'll hear from Prime Time's Fran McNulty. First, though, here are some exchanges between dealers and drug users as recorded by the programme. No smoke around, bro. It gives a ball of luck. I thought it was a dumb use, and you let's work. What are you looking for, buddy? Yeah, it goes three weeks. Give us three weeks, you know. So now what I have around the gaff, I have uh, D5s. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the DLs. yeah. And Fran McNulty joins us in studio. Fran, tell us what we were listening to there. That's just a snippet from tonight's programme, Rachel, of of dealers selling to buyers uh, in in one location. And they're talking about balls of rock, crack cocaine, D5s, yellies. They're pills, uh, basically pharmaceuticals, counterfeit drugs, which people are buying on the streets. And of course, we heard brown and white there. The brown being a reference to heroin, the white being a reference to crack cocaine. And the two drugs uh, we explained tonight tend to go hand in hand for chronic drug users, which is one of the things which is really worrying people. And we we film for a full week in one location and th- that's just a tiny snippet on one afternoon alone over a four hour period there were 42 drug deals done and what we do tonight is we have an expert a former undercover ga- drugs guarder who who talk viewers through the footage talk them through what they're seeing and how serious and how significant uh, what's being revealed is now a lot of this footage was recorded in Ballymun in Dublin why Ballymun because the area has the highest number of opiate users in, in the country and also the Health Research Board have been telling us that the problem there is acute in their view because a third of all people seeking treatment for cocaine in Ballymun are using crack cocaine. That's high by comparison to other areas. Crack is a problem in other parts of Dublin like Tala and Finglas and Cabra and the north inner city but there is a particular problem in Ballymun because of the heroin epidemic of the past that it suffered and it means that there are quite a number of vulnerable people there many people on methadone and crack is being pushed hard on them by dealers because they know that they are susceptible to it and therefore they're targeting them and as we show tonight they're targeting not only by stuffing product through front doors but texting them round the clock telling them where drugs are available and when they are available and it really is beginning to become a problem in the area. Parts of Ballymun are like an open air drug market uh, all day long in broad daylight and on the rt.ie forward slash investigates page this morning we go into some detail on that, what it looks like and how people are suffering. But what has happened is it has led to this huge fear in the community. Children and older people are coming face to face with dealers. Andrew Montague is a former Lord Mayor of Dublin. He's a Ballymun resident. He's chair of the local drugs task force. And he speaks to us about this open dealing. They're intimidated. They don't want to make eye contact with somebody who's drug dealing. They don't want to be seen. They're afraid that they'd be accused of ratting somebody out. So they withdraw and they become less involved in the community life and that's a very worrying problem for us. The level of open drug dealing we see here just would not be tolerated in more advantaged communities in this country. There would be an outcry and something would be done about it. What role do the guards have? What I'm actually looking for them is to have a presence in the community so that that can stop that open drug dealing that has such a negative impact on so many people in the community. 
Andrew Montague. Fran, what are Gardaí saying about this? Well, they're saying they're aware of the street dealing and they're aware of the uh, antisocial implications of it, but they're also saying and reacting to some significant criticism about a a depletion of resources there over recent years. They're saying 31 drugs guards are based in the Dublin North region. They're saying that's 10% of all the drugs guards in the country. Now, the guards didn't do an interview in the programme tonight, but they do provide a statement in which they say, look, we're going to tackle street dealing as part of a new national operation called Operation Tara. But what's happening is, Rachel, the, the drug dealers are evading uh, the Gardaí, and we actually feature this on the programme tonight on one occasion. Uh, guards walk past some of the dealers. Minutes later, a deal is done. They uh, would have to be within eyesight. On another occasion, uh, a, an unmarked drugs guard the car drives into an area of dealers, uh, and they scatter. They're gone within seconds. It's completely futile. And that's the difficulty that the guards have. It's really hard to police. But what quite apart from policing everybody says it's not just about policing it's about breaking a cycle you know 40, 30, 40 years after the heroin epidemic here we are again with another problem in Ballymun and we talk as I mentioned a former undercover drugs guard her name is Sheila Brady and she talks about breaking the cycle Um, she talks about the issues in Ballymun and other areas that aren't being tackled and she says that just it's much more than policing if we constantly see it as a policing problem, something that we can destroy, get rid of, in actual fact it will just move on and that's why we are seeing the rise in crack cocaine in communities that were devastated with heroin in the 80s and 90s because the underlying problems haven't been addressed. If the previous epidemics are anything to teach us, is this is not going to go away fast unless we decide that today enough is enough. We're creating a bigger problem not only for these communities but for society as a whole. And that was former Garda Sheila Brady. And that programme, RTE Investigates Crack and the Community, will be on primetime tonight on RTE One Television just after the news at 9.35. Our thanks to Fran McNulty. I'd say to anyone who's planning a wedding in August, uh, operate on the basis that'll be 50. Um, That might change, it might change to 100, but um, uh, I wouldn't plan on that basis. That was Tony to Leo Varadkar speaking at Dublin Castle yesterday about COVID-19's impact on how many people can attend weddings this summer. It had been hoped that wedding reception numbers could increase from 50 to 100 next month. Tara Fay is a wedding planner and president of the Irish Wedding Association. Tara Fay, good morning. Good morning. What's your reaction to hearing this? You know, it's... I don't think it's surprising, but it's hugely upsetting for a lot of couples. I think when they heard initially that we were going to possibly move to 100 people in August, they won't have heard the caveat that it was dependent on current health advice. So a lot of them would have sent out their invitations in June for 100 people. I mean, last week, the deafening silence, I think, was what within the wedding industry we we thought that that was this is never going to happen uh, so my phone was ringing off the hook from couples from um, their parents uh from siblings none of these people i know just asking did we have did i have any insight and they were calling other people within our association as well to see did anybody know because they would have invited 100 people and now they don't know what to do because a lot of people maybe they have um relatives overseas they were obviously waiting for the 19th of july for overseas travel to open and now they're left in the position where they don't know if it's 50 they don't know if it's 100 i think it would be easier just to come out and say it is not happening as opposed to giving some hope 
And also then people who are getting married for September, October, November, they need to know. As a wedding planner, what have you been told? As a planner and as somebody within the wedding industry, we have been told nothing. Um, Nobody has ever contacted anybody in the wedding industry over the last 17 months to discuss anything. Um, As regards restrictions, as regards our thoughts, in terms of anything and the wedding industry is an incredibly busy viable vibrant industry in this country that contributes huge amounts to um to local economies um, and is part of tourism and we have had absolutely no interaction with any department i think i'm such a prolific letter writer now i must be on a banned list within department of tourism and enterprise and employment tell us about or if you can give us an example of the kind of weddings that were planned for next month i mean a wedding at the moment is not what people would think of as a traditional wedding so at the moment, there is there is no live or loud music for your for your reception, so for dinner. So there is no first dance, for example, for a couple. So unless they can be incredibly creative, like at the moment where they're having a drinks reception outside, a lot of couples will do possibly a first dance outside where they are in you know the open air and they are not having loud music. It, there's only six people to a table, so the huge, big, heavy, you know long top tables with a full dance floor with people dancing all night is not a thing that is happening at the moment. There is a curfew for weddings. Um, you know, masks have to be worn unless somebody is sitting at the table. We have the best contact tracing system for weddings because every wedding will have a table plan. So we know exactly where every single guest is sitting during the whole uh, dinner as opposed to, I mean, we're delighted for all of our colleagues in hospitality that they're able to potentially open next week but a, a restaurant would have more than 50 people in it at any one time. A lot of the age profile of our wedding couples and wedding guests will be fully vaccinated. And none of that has been taken into account. It's half past seven. I'll get to news headlines shortly. For those then who are planning weddings into August and who perhaps had planned on weddings of up to 100, what are you advising them to do now? Will there be refunds for them? Well, see, here's the thing. Not every wedding has a planner. So any of the planners that I know had all tempered expectations with their couples and said, you know, hold off. Don't let's let's look at maybe dividing the couples that you've invited. So who is that? They're left now with the situation where they're having to look at every single couple that they've invited and say, can they ask one of those people to stay at home as opposed to having two people come They're Unless they have unless they're going to push their wedding into next year, but when are they going to push their wedding to? And what, you know, what are they pushing it to? If they have already paid for 100 guests, they will have to go and have very difficult conversations with their venues to try and get the money back. I mean, venues, again, have to be our, our business, a viable business. Okay. They, they're not, you know, they, they will have to look at, at their accounts and see can they refund the monies to the, to the couples as well. Tara Fay, thanks for talking to us. That's Tara Fay, a wedding planner, president of the Irish Wedding Associations. So the heatwave will continue for the next couple of days at least. Scorchio temperatures of up to 30 degrees. So one of the biggest questions is, how do we look cool in the hot weather instead of red-faced and sweating, which is my default? How do we redesign our wardrobes more accustomed to dressing us for drizzle, rain and freezing temperatures? Our reporter Una Kelly has been finding out. 
It's too darn hot. It's too darn hot. It's interesting, I've looked around and I see men in short trousers who would never wear short trousers rolling up their sleeves of shorts. I'm an example myself, but this is something I've said many times. Nobody has really designed a dress for the Irish climate. We could have four different seasons in the one day and you'd have some sort of you'd have to have some sort of alert clothing that you could take on and off very easily. That's the thoughts of one fashion watcher in Dublin city centre. Dressing for the heat can be tricky when it takes you by surprise. And sometimes we all need some advice. They're useful. Um, this is another pair of shorts, but these are sort of beach shorts, the cool... Like. I'm Deirdre McQuillan, the fashion editor of the Irish Times. Um, I do see people wearing very, very... Men particularly wearing very, very tight shirts where the buttons are beginning to, to stretch a bit, and I think that's not a good look. <laughs> they need to kind of wear something a bit looser and more comfortable. So uh, I think top tips are good footwear. You don't want sweaty toes, and I think you need to have a good pedicure because you're going to be looking at your, sh- your toes a lot, your bare toes, a good hat, and good shades, and the rest is easy enough. In terms of cut of clothes and fabrics, what would you recommend? Well, I'm totally against any kind of synthetic fabric. Polyester, no, it'll only make you sweat and feel uncomfortable. Cotton, linen, silk are all good, but it, it just it's it's comfort really that you're after and coolness, comfort and coolness. Loose clothing, comfortable clothing. Um, you can get re- really inexpensive. Um, organic cotton in in pennies so you don't need to spend a lot if you want to get a pair of shorts i do do my favorite tip about shorts is get them with wider legs rather than clinging to your thighs they look better that way i think some are skirts the big sellers now do the denim skirts because for all the young Teresa works in liberty recycling charity shop on camden street she says people tend to search shops like hers for summer bargains we got a lot of men now, a lot of men coming in for shorts and t-shirts and ladies coming in for the hot pants and the mini skirts and summer trousers and dresses. Were you able to meet that demand? Did you have enough for people? Yeah, no, we're able to meet the demand yet. Well, as you can see, we're running out of men's shorts. Do you think that Irish people know how to dress well for the heat? Not at all. Look at me, I'm sweating. <laughs> what do you see people wearing? A lot of the young people are wearing shorts and mini skirts and that now at the moment. And a lot of women are wearing the long dresses. Yeah, well, Irish women are stylish, aren't we? Back in Dublin city centre, not everyone is impressed with the summer style on display. Now the young lads dressed in tracksuits, <laughs> literally. And then when it's winter, they're in the sandals and the flip-flops and the shorts and the tank tops. But when it's summer, they don't dress like it's summer. They're literally dressing like it's winter. I mean, a lot of you, like... I feel like people are a little bit more mannerly. You won't see like people in town shirtless or something because I feel like that's a little inappropriate. Not inappropriate, but like in Latvia we think that's inappropriate. So people would usually take off tops like, you know, at the beach. But here you can see like people around towns walking shirtless. I don't mind, but you know, some people have a problem with that and I feel like they should keep their shirt on. I think actually it comes as such a surprise actually for the weather that I think scantily dressed I would believe that you know for the days that are actually hot I think Irish people just underdress in the hot weather. A lot of people were running around in like in their like swimmers and that kind of stuff like when they weren't swimming. A lot of middle-aged men not wearing shirts <laughs> that's been pretty bad or the guys still going around in jeans because they don't have shorts or like still in the trackies and the jeans but they're melting yeah that's not good. <laughs> It's too darn hot. It's 
And that was our reporter, Una Kelly. Now it's over to our... You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.